You're listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Uh, we're going to dive in to Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, your smartphones, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 33. And I want to start with a question. If you could have everything that your heart desired, but the only exception is you can't have God. Would you want it? That means if you could have a good life, the, a lot of money, the good job, the, the right car, house, spouse, all that stuff. If you could have it all, and the only condition is that you can't have God, would you take that deal? And it's a relevant question because we're going to see that that is the exact offer that is made to Israel in our text today. And we're going to see how they respond. I'm going to pray for us as we dive in. Father, would you please teach us from your word? God, would you reveal yourself to us as we study your scriptures? And so, God, we open our hearts to you and say, Lord, teach us. We want to know you more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the context, if you're joining us for the first week, context leading up to this point, as we see throughout all of Exodus, God is drawing near to his people. He is answering their prayers. He is going before them. He's providing for their needs. He's teaching them his laws. And he's even just given these plans to make his residency among them. God is totally committed to this relationship and to this people. And then if you were with us last week, then Exodus 32 happened. And these people made a golden calf. And so we're going to see in chapter 33 how God responds to that. So this is in response to them making a golden calf. The Lord said to Moses in chapter 33, verse 1, Depart. Go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. To the land of which I have sworn uh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. Okay, we're going to time out there. Now, you want to understand the terms of the offer that God has given to them. See, I'm married to a lawyer, right? And so I understand that you need to look at the fine print on things. For example, when we closed on our house here in Columbia, my wife is perhaps the only person that I personally know that when you go to a closing, if you've ever been to a closing, they give you stacks of papers to sign. And she will read nearly every word in those papers. Oh, those bankers and those people at the closing, like, they don't know what to do that. Usually, just scribble it. Excuse me, I have a question, an article B, section what? And my wife, she is on it, right? So she's taught me to look at the fine print. So let's look at the fine print together. Let's examine the offer. What's he saying? He's saying, depart and go up from here. 
Egypt would have been south of this promised land. And so this land that God is giving to them is kind of this fertile land. North of there, this would have been modern day kind of Jerusalem. And this is the, this promised land. And he's saying it's beautiful. It's this fertile land. On one side is a desert. On one side is a sea. And in there is just this strip of just beautiful fertile land. In fact, the imagery that, that God gives them, he's saying it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Saying it is sweet. <laughs> it is good land. What else does he say? It's the promised land. This is land that I swore that I would give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've heard it referred to as the, the promised land. God said, I promised to give it to these guys. And you have to understand, when he first made that promise to Abraham, Abraham was an old man. And his wife wasn't much younger, and they didn't have a, a child to their name. And God told Abraham and promised him and said, I'm going to make from you a great nation and this beautiful land that you're kind of wandering through right now, I'm going to give it to you. And so, so far in our text, we see God saying, go up, I'm giving you this land, I promised it, it's yours and he goes on to say, there's these people that are there, and you get the list of names, and he's saying, I will drive them out. Again, can you imagine what he's saying here, that, that you can go into this land, this beautiful land, and you can have it. And there's these people there, and so they would have had homes, they would have had vineyards, they would have had all this stuff, and God's saying, I'll drive them out, and it's yours. I mean, can you imagine that? Like going, uh, you know, if, if you're looking to buy a house and you get on like the Realtor or the Zillow app, all of a sudden, like you're just looking, you're like, oh, this one's nice. It's kind of got a pool. And you look and it's like, yep, you just pick whichever one you want. They're yours. Like there, there's no cost. These people would have been able to walk in to a place and say, well, uh, dibs on the one that overlooks the vineyard, like that one's mine. Do you understand how God is giving it to them? This is the, the audacity of God. When they go to the promised land, first town they get to, Jericho. God's like, remember, I'm going to give this to you, right? Here's how I'm going to give it to you. Just walk around it, and then when the walls fall down, just go ahead and have it. <laughs> it's absurd. Some of you are like, that's crazy. Uh-huh. This is what he's promising. He's saying, here's the land. It's yours. You can have it. I'm going to drive these people out. You can sit in these homes that you didn't have to build. You can eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. It is yours. And when I give you the land, you can worship me, and there's this obedience, and it's going to testify my goodness. So, so go up and fulfill the promise. Sounds amazing, right? The fine print, verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But, perhaps one of the biggest buts in the Bible here, all right? But I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. What God is saying is you can have the promised land, but you can't have me. You can't have my presence. I'll give it all to you, but you can't have me. And the Israelites, they're so desperate to have God among them. Do you understand? That's what drove them in chapter 32 to want to have, to make a golden calf. They say, we need a God to go with us. 
Moses, we don't know what happened to him. Guys, again, the time frame of that, it was not that long that Moses was away. But saying, we're so desperate to have God go with us. Let's make one as best we know out of gold that we plundered and let's bow down and worship it. We so want God. See, it was the right desire, but the wrong expression. God's solution was to build his sanctuary in the middle of their camp. Israel's solution was to to build a golden calf. Now, in response to that, God is threatening to remove his presence from them. I just want to have a little bit of a teachable moment. I think one of the first points of application is that these false gods that we can see, we can touch, like the golden calf, they don't bring us closer to God, but rather they push God away. See, God will want to fill our lives with his presence. But when we carry around all this other stuff, we push God out. And so the offer to them was, you can have the promised land. You can have all this blessing. You can have it all, but you can't have me. So the opening question, would you take that deal? Would you take it? Is this not the God that our culture would love to have? You can have all the blessings with no authority. You can have the great marriage, the beautiful house, be independently wealthy, healthy, all of that. You can have heaven on earth. You just can't have me. And we see Israel respond, and they said, no deal. (laughs) Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. They refer to it as, this is disastrous. This is the worst. And they mourned. They understood something that I don't think our culture has yet figured out. That God is the only one that can fill. Let me ask you this. Just musing on this. Do celebrities, do these people that you see in Us Weekly, People Magazine, you know what I'm talking about when you're checking out at the store and you see these? Did those celebrities, these people of fame, did they have more than you? They probably have a little bit more money than you. I'm just guessing, right? They probably have a little bit more money, a little more power, a little more fame. But are they more full? Are they more full? See, all those things are good, but they're not God. And the tragic reality is that all the things in this world, they cannot and will not fill you. They never were intended to. But yet some reason we still continue to want to buy those magazines and look to those people. And they're no more full. In fact, I would argue less. Because you don't have to look very far to see the emptiness that results in just just simply having the world and not having God. And that emptiness, unfortunately, to some, led to them taking their own life. I mean, the list continues to grow. You got the Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, uh, Chris Farley recently, uh, Robin Williams. And you can fill in the gaps. You know how this ends, that that the, the world was never intended to fill you up. And the reality is that this thing that people are longing for, 
this peace, this joy, this security, this comfort. The world can't provide it. Only God. God is the source of that. So I'd say it like this. Everyone is longing for what God brings, and few are looking for God to bring it. Everyone is longing for what God brings, but few are looking to God to actually bring that. What I mean is, is who doesn't want security? Who doesn't want a level of security, right? God's solution, I'll provide security. World solution, find security in a larger bank account. Who doesn't want to have a level of, of joy? God's saying, I'll be your joy. Have a relationship with me. The world's solution to that? Well, here, have more stuff. Comfort. God's solution? I'm the solution. The world, again, it's these false gods can only do in part what God can do in full. See, God is the source of joy, peace, security, all of that. Israel understood that, and they say, you can... You can make the promise as best as you want. You can give us this land, but if you don't go with us, they're saying no deal. And in fact, they mourned at the thought of that. That, that is, that they took off their ornaments, this, this gold, the, these things that would have, you know, looked like something, presents, and it would have shown some level of status. It, it was an adornment that they would have had on. And they take it off and they say, we are going to mourn. We're going to weep. And so they take off this wealth, this gold, all these things that are shining. And they're saying, no, like we are sad. This is why when you go to a funeral, typically you're not wearing like a Hawaiian shirt and sandals, right? You're typically dark colors to suggest like we are mourning. And so they, in the state of mourning, take off this wealth and lay it down. Again, I don't think it's the main point, but you have to see that, that, that wealth, money, those things aren't evil. Because here they are using their money to say something about God. They're using their wealth to glorify God and say, Lord, we don't want this stuff. We want you. That's quite contrary to chapter 32. But again, how you use that. And so we see the response. It's the right response. And God clarifies why he's not going with them. In verse 5, he clarifies why says to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Again, you see a level of judgment on a stiff-necked people, but also a level of mercy. God saying, you don't want me to go with you because I'm liable and righteously so to break out and kill you when things like this happen. And so he leaves a level of this uncertainty. Do you catch that there? At the end of five, he says, that I may know what to do with you. Now rest assured, God's not confused here. He's not uncertain of what he's going to do, but he leaves a level of uncertainty out there. He's saying, take it off, figure out what I'm going to do with you. And this uncertainty is going to provoke Moses to pursue a more direct answer from the Lord. 
If we continue reading in 33, we see in verse 11 that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so Moses and God have this relationship and Moses is going to leverage that relationship with the Lord to get some clarity. And he's like, now now when you say you're not sure what you're going to do with this here, let's figure this out. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, again, I'm trying to figure out what tone he would have used as he's speaking to God like a friend. I'm trying to be neutral, but he says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And again, in verse 13, at the end, he says, consider too that this nation is your people, To fully appreciate the context, go back to to, uh, 33 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. And what Moses is saying here is that, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, these aren't my people. (laughs) These are your people. Do you see the language that's going on there? I can imagine Moses like, no, like I was happy shepherding some sheep. You lit a bush on fire. And even then, I tried to tell you no. Like, these are your people, God. My wife and I will sometimes have this little exchange, you know? She's like, you won't believe what your children did today. I'm like, oh, they're my children, right? Your children colored on the wall. I'm like, I think we made these things together. Like, our children. But, but there's kind of like this, hey, your people. And so now Moses is simply asking, hey, he's like, man to God here, what's the plan? How are you going to handle this, God? That's what he's asking in 12 and 13. What's your plan? And God responds in verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And so he, being Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You, you reading along, you're like, is, did Moses not just hear what God said? So you got to go and study this a little bit deeper. What, what God said in verse 14 is he's saying, Moses, I'll go with you, singular. My presence will be with you, singular. And if you're reading in any other translation other than the ESV, I don't know why ESV, the first part of that, they put me, but it's plural. And so the better, proper way to say what Moses said was, if your presence will not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses is mediating on behalf of all of Israel. Moses understood the people of God needed God every bit as much as he did. And so what Moses is saying, it's not enough for me to just go. It's not enough for just me to have you, Lord. I am mediating on behalf of everyone else that you would bring us up. And he goes on to say, if you don't, don't even bring us up from here. Just leave us in the wilderness. Going without you is not an option. And he elaborates in verse 16. He leverages this relationship with the Lord. He says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people... Is it not in you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? 
Moses is saying it is not about the blessings. It's not about the promised land. That's not what is going to make us distinct. That's not what separates us from every other people in the world. He's saying there's people right now that have the same vineyards, the same house, right? That, that means nothing in terms of distinguishing us. He's saying the thing that makes us unique is, is you, God. Our relationship with you if we don't have your presence, we're just like everyone else. And I'd say it like this if you're taking Mo's, uh, notes. Moses understood that the best blessing that God can give us is himself. Moses understood that the best, the, the, the best thing that God can give us is himself. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. See, Moses leveraged his relationship for the sake of all of God's people. Man, Todd was taking us there a couple weeks ago, but does that not sound familiar? Does that not, not have the undertones of the gospel, Jesus Christ leveraging his relationship with the Father? And saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so Jesus, leveraging that relationship, leveraging his, relation, uh, his righteousness, would make a way for us, a sinful people, to be known by God. That we could be chosen, that we could be distinct, that we could be set apart. Because God has given us the greatest gift, which is himself, through Jesus. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so Moses brokers the deal. God says, because I know you, I have found favor with you, I'll do what you asked. Moses isn't done. <laughs> and we're not either. We got to keep going. God said, okay. You found favor in my sight. I know you by name. And Moses said, immediately on the heels of that, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I'm telling you, I want to have a relationship like this with the Lord. Where you can just, there, the level of audacity to follow that up, to just broker that deal and say, ah, oh, I'm not done. I want to know you. That's what he's saying here is, I want to know you. You just said, you know me and you're going to do this on my behalf. I want to know you, God. Show me your glory. Verse 19, God's response. I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. See, he's asking, you want to know me? I'm going to reveal myself to you, but only in part. See, you're asking for, Moses, what did he ask for? He asked for God to reveal his glory, the fullness of who he is. And God's saying, I'll give you my goodness. Because that's about all you can handle. And he goes on to elaborate why. Why is he going to just reveal his goodness and reveal his name only in part? Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What he's saying is, you would die. Like, if you 
saw my glory. You could not handle that. I'm trying to think of an illustration. Um, have you ever seen something in creation, something so beautiful, like for a moment it takes your breath away? You know what I'm talking about? The time that I, I can vividly remember this is uh, I, my wife's uh, engagement ring, right? A little bit of a, a cheapskate. So I ordered this thing online, and I had not seen it in person yet. It comes in the mail, package. I take out the package, and, uh, and it has one of those little velvet boxes, right? And I remember standing in the bachelor pad and, and opening that thing up, and it literally, like, took my breath away looking at this thing. I could not breathe. At that point, I still didn't know if it was a piece of glass or a real diamond, so I folded the box up and went down to the jewelry store, and I'm like, can you appraise this thing? But for a moment there, right, you, you flip it open, and you're like, oh. okay. That was a small rock. Emphasis on small, right? That was a tiny rock. What God is saying is, it, I am infinitely better than that. Perhaps in the sunset or the stars or whatever it is that came to mind for you. He's saying, I, I don't know if, if beholding all of who God is in our like human state, if it would like take the breath like literally out of you and you would die like through suffocation. I don't know if you like your head would explode. Whatever it is, he's saying you can't handle all of me. You would die. And so he's saying, I'm going to show you my goodness. And so this is what happened in verse 21. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand and then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Again, when God speaks of his face, his hand, his back, he's speaking figuratively. He's expressing the invisible majesty of his eternal being and human body parts, physical things that symbolize spiritual realities. And so when he says his back, a.k.a. his goodness, the best way to perhaps think about this is that his glory is passing by all of who God is, and his goodness is just like the vapor trail that's left. It's the after effects of, of who God is. And so what God does is he, he puts Moses more or less in a cave and God, for Moses, he is protected by God from God. He's protected by God from God. And God removes and Moses gets to see just the vapor trails of the glory of God. See, God was willing to make himself known to Moses, who was bold enough to ask. The disciples would ask Jesus. They would say in John 14, Lord, show us the Father, that we, and that will be enough for us. In other words, the disciples were saying, let us see God. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
anthem. We can see God through looking at Jesus, through studying scripture, prayer, fellowship together. We can come to know God more fully. That's why as a church we say, we want to know God. Because we believe that knowing God is going to produce this this love for God. And this love is going to flow out in obedience. And so we want to know, love, and obey God. And God is willing to make himself known through Jesus. And Jesus mediated for us, and he's revealed God's glory to us. He's the cornerstone of our whole salvation. It all hinges upon him. And so chapter 33 really provokes the question, do you want God or do you just want his blessings? And Israel is saying, we want God. Not just his blessings, we want him. We want relationship with him. And they go so far as to say, we are not going to take one more step until God, you go with us. So, get to 34, and God's saying, okay, you want me? Then, In all fairness, in 34, God's saying, this is who I am, and this is what I require. You're saying, you want me. If you're a good church person, you're like, I think the answer is God, not stuff, okay? That's good. So, in fairness, God say, okay, if you are choosing me, I want you to know who I am and what I require, I don't want to do a bait and switch. I want to be fair what you're getting into. And so 34 is God revealing himself in that way and saying, in all fairness, this is who I am and this is what I require. 34 verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's he saying? He's saying, you want to know who I am? I'm a loving God. I am merciful. I am slow to anger. I am abounding in love. But make no mistake, I will punish the guilty. So much so to the third and fourth generation. There is a weight to your sin. And God's saying, I am merciful, but I am just. That is who I am. I cannot separate those two things. To to separate my justice from my mercy would not make me good. So God is saying, I am both merciful and I am just. That's who I am. And he goes on, the rest of 34, and says, this is what I require. And we see Moses re-chiseling the Ten Commandments. First time, God did it. This time, Moses, you broke it. You got to make them back, right? And so God reveals the covenant to him again, and Moses chisels out the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And again, God's saying, if you choose me, I want to be very clear. This is who I am. This is what I require that you would obey my laws, the guidelines I've set forth. And interacting with Todd, who's on our teaching team, he said, at this point in the sermon, the original question still remains. Which is better? Which would you want? Do you want God, or do you just want the blessings? Because there's still the problem there. Which one is better? Chapter 34 reveals that there are still challenges with choosing God. Choosing the real God means you need to obey his commands. You need to subject yourself to his authority. 
It's just a different set of problems when you choose to follow God. I apologize if that's the first time you're hearing that. I, you know, somebody maybe has told you, like, well, just accept Jesus and everything gets better. What in Scripture would, would lead us to that conclusion? As Jesus himself was nailed to a cross, he says, don't be surprised when the world rejects you and rejected me. Looking at early church history, as the disciples are killed, martyred for the faith. See, when you follow God, it just enters a new set of problems. Todd said it like this. I thought it was helpful. He says, if you have God, you're going to have the kind of problems people who follow God have. If you don't have God, you have the kind of problems people who do not follow God have. Israel's saying, God, we want you, and we won't take another step without you. What that means is, Lord, anything you ask, anywhere, at any time, we're willing. Do you see how that might present its challenges? From this week alone, for me personally, what that's looked like is, God, I'm willing to follow you. I said, okay, great. Well, this person's in sin, and I want you to speak to them about that. Might be a little awkward. From this week alone, God's saying, okay, remember how I adopted you? I want you to consider adopting you and your wife, adding to your family. I'm calling you to long days, some short nights. I'm promising you, God's saying, that the world is going to reject you. It rejected me. I'm going to ask you for your first fruits and your best fruits to endure discipline, and to gain righteousness, to count trials as blessing. That's what's in store, not only for me, but for, for followers of Jesus. It's a different set of challenges. That's why Jesus said it like this. He said, if you're going to follow me, he says, if anyone would come after me in Luke 9, 23 through 25, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Christian, your life will not be void of trials and hardships. It just won't. I need you to hear this. But the promise is that if we choose God, if we have God, we will not be alone. It may present itself another set of challenges, but the promise from Scripture is that we will not endure those things alone. That we can, with the, the fullness of who God is, in relationship with Him, address those things head on. Yeah, there's its own set of problems. But what do you want? What are your options? And really, there's two. God, I want the whole world, and I want to do it without you. Or God, I want you. And that's, that, that's it. Whatever may become, whether it, it be, be a lot or a little, I just, I want you. I'm telling you, that's what Israel, that's what they're saying here is we don't want the promised land, we don't want all the blessings, 
Lord, we want you. We want your presence. And it's this reality and this understanding that we have a longing and only God can fill that. The best thing that God can give us is himself. And he has through Jesus. And Romans 10, 11 would say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I'm gonna pray for us as the band comes up. God, thank you for your word. And thank you that you would graciously reveal yourself to us, that you would give yourself to us. And Father, we saying more than we want what you give, we want you, the gift giver. Lord, apart from you, we acknowledge that we can do nothing. And Lord, even though that, that, that Satan may tempt us to believe otherwise, we know there are lies that, that this world can never fill. It never has and it never will. And in that creates a longing for you. Lord, thank you that those things never do fill and they leave us empty. No, <laughs> nothing there. And so, Anthem, I just invite you this morning that as we get ready to worship, I want you to, um, as we get ready to take communion, I want you to, to just vocalize what it is that is tempting to fill you. What it is that you say, God, more than I want this, I want you. And so... In